time, so we usually start at 635. <laughs> so, um, and the only reason I'm, I've got the microphone is, number one, so you can hear me, and number two, because we're recording this for some of the people that are in um, Team Kid that aren't able to be a part of this. So um, if it feels like I'm way up here and you're way down there, it's, we're just going to have to, it's because of, of the way it is. And so um, you guys are the brave souls that came to the Doctrines of Grace class. I thought it may just be me by myself. But um, what I want us to do is um, really just kind of lay a foundation tonight. I think other people are starting to come in. I want to just lay a foundation tonight um, of really what we're, what we're talking about and where we're going. Because there's a lot of caricatures. There's a lot of... Um, misunderstanding. I'm on both sides of the issue as far as what you believe about election, what you believe about predestination, what you believe about all the different doctrines that are related to um, salvation. But I first want to just show you the syllabus on your sheet of paper here just so you kind of know where we're going. Um, We're going to kind of look at um, each of the five points. It's going to take us two, two Wednesdays to do that. And then towards the end, we'll start getting into some objections and questions and other things like that. And so basically for our purposes tonight, what I want to do is, um, for the sake of those watching the video, I want to go ahead and just give my presentation, give the teaching, and then we'll leave time at the end for question and answer and and debriefing. But it would be helpful just to get it all out there and then come back and and deal with those. On the second page of your um, debriefing... Debriefing your syllabus. Um, I've given you some resources there. Probably one of the best resources on the web is um, monergism.com. That has articles, it has MP3 sermons, it has links to other websites, it has um, every issue of theology, every book of the Bible. It's a a gold mine there. Um, My top seven books on this subject uh, number one, The Potter's Freedom. Uh, This was a book that shaped my understanding of it. It was a professor of mine, and um, I read it three times. The first time, I highly disagreed with him vehemently. The second time, I sort of disagreed with him. The third time, I found myself agreeing with him. So you can see the different stages of my development in in that book. Uh, Putting Amazing Back into Grace by Michael Horton is a great book. Um, Just a warning, he has a chapter there on on the sacraments that's really really more of a... um, covenant Presbyterian view than Baptistic view as far as believers baptizing, baptizing by immersion. Uh, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Excellent. There's one book just called The Five Points of Calvinism, and it takes every point and just gives all the scriptures related to that. Uh, Chosen for Life is a pretty new one by Sam Storms, but it's really practical and he addresses a lot of issues. Um, the introductory essay by J.I. Packer in uh, John Owen's The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. You can get that on monergism. And then number seven, redemption, accomplished, and applied. You can look at the, I've, I've broken it down by easy to moderate reading, more difficult reading, and then very, very difficult reading down there. So that's kind of um, just for your information. But I want us to start with the word of prayer, and then um, we'll go ahead and get started. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight and just to look at your word a complex, sometimes emotional issue, Lord, and a lot of us come with different uh, backgrounds, a lot of us come with different upbringings, a lot of us come with, with perspectives to this issue, Lord, and I just pray that, um, Lord, we're humble, we can treat each other as brothers in Christ, and we can possibly agree to disagree, and Lord, we can, um, 
really just come to some conclusions and realize that, Lord, we don't need to break fellowship over these, over these issues as brothers and sisters in Christ. So just give us wisdom tonight and let us glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I debated whether I was going to actually um, ever teach this class at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, as many of you know, when I came to the church, um, the committee asked me about my theology, and I said, do you guys have any problems uh, with a Calvinist being, on your, being your pastor? And um, they said, well, talk to us about your Calvinism. And I said, well, I'm a compassionate Calvinist, which means I believe in praying for lost people. I believe in um, uh, evangelism and all those types of things. And so um, I said, I probably will rarely stand up from the pulpit on a Sunday morning and, and preach tulip or preach the five points, but it will come out in my preaching and teaching. And so the, the main reason that I've decided to actually teach this class is at the request of a lot of people in the church that want to know some of you struggled with it. Some of you want to know what it means. Um, I've, I've kind of given you books. Um, I've never really sat down with anybody in this church and, and discipled them one-on-one to become a Calvinist, okay? Um, I've given books. I've given resources. It's not my job to do that. Um, I've got a theology. Um, you have a theology. The main um, joy is the journey and how you, you get to where you are. So before we even begin um, discussing this whole issue, I want to lay out some foundations, so let's look at the, the game plan. Let's look at some playing rules. And so you've got these concentric circles. And uh, my remote control is not working now. It worked all morning. Shane, can we somehow see if we can get that to work? I don't know if it froze up. Okay, there we go. And a lot of you have seen this before, this diagram, but this really helps us understand um, some, just, just the way we look at theology. There is an area we call dogma, and I'm going to explain these in just a moment. And there's an area that we call doctrine, and then there's an area we call preferences. Preferences. And if you look at the concentric circles, what's in the middle is the most important going out to the least important. So let's talk about dogma. When, when we say dogma, we're saying these are the absolute things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. Okay, if you don't believe these things, you're either a cult or you've, you've veered off away from Orthodox Christianity, okay? So this includes any brother or sister in Christ who claims to be an Orthodox Christian. These would be issues like, let's just talk about dogma issues here for a moment, issues of dogma. These would be issues like the Trinity. We believe in one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We are not Jehovah's Witnesses where we believe um, in a weird view of the Trinity. We don't believe in multiple gods. We, we believe the Trinity. We believe the deity of Christ, that Jesus is divine. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is God in the flesh. The virgin birth, that Jesus was miraculously conceived by the virgin. Uh, we believe in the substitutionary death, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins that he was a sin bearer. We believe in the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, and, and again, these are the basics, but, but, but a lot of denominations, a lot of groups are even going away from dogma, so we've got to be real clear on what these issues are. Uh, the resurrection. We believe in a literal resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive today. He's in heaven. 
We believe the second coming of Christ, he's going to come back. Now, the details about that, there's all the different end times view. Bottom line is Jesus is coming back. He's coming back physically. He's coming back bodily. He's going to come back to judge. He's literally going to come back to the earth. Another dogma would be that Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's not one of many ways, but he is the only way. Uh, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Justification through faith alone by grace alone. We believe that um, one of the, the, the basic dogmas that separates us from Roman Catholicism lies in this issue of justification. An imputed righteousness that comes from Christ. It's not our own works. It's not anything we contribute. Another one would be um, the inspiration, authority, and errancy of Scripture. We believe the Bible. That the Bible is God's word without error. It's inspired. It's God-breathed. And then there's one last dogma, and that is the reality of heaven and hell, that there is a literal heaven and there's a literal hell, okay? So what we're saying about dogma here is that these issues are issues that you have to believe in order to be an Orthodox Christian. If you don't believe these things, then you may be a... Maybe it's out of ignorance, but, it, but, but it, these are the doctrines of the basic tenets of Christian faith. Okay, these are dogma. These are things, these are the hills you're going to die on. These are the hills I'm going to die on. Okay, now let's talk about doctrine, issues of doctrine. Some of these issues, um, these are issues that divide denominations, that divide, not necessarily divide, but separate the way different denominations or different brothers and sisters in Christ look at different views. But we wouldn't say to a brother or sister in Christ over here that, that believes differently that they're not a Christian. Okay? That's why the doctrine is different than the dogma. Mode of baptism. Okay? Some people sprinkle. Some people baptize by immersion. We are Baptists, so we baptize by immersion. But are we to say our Presbyterian brothers and sisters who sprinkle, who are born again, aren't Christians? And so baptism is, is an issue of doctrine. In times views, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, panmillennial, um, pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, um, all the different ways that the end times, we can agree to disagree on those. Okay, I would just give you a warning. Anybody that claims to be dogmatic on an end times view, you may need to be just a little bit careful because the greatest scholarly minds have not come to conclusions that agree on end times issues. Okay, what about the gifts of the Spirit? Some people still believe that uh, the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of speaking in tongues and miracles, um, those are around today. Some people are what they call cessationists. They believe that uh, those gifts have ceased. And so, um, you know, you've got your more charismatic or Pentecostal brothers and sisters. And, uh, and so issues of, of doctrine. Um, church polity. We at Emmanuel Hill have elders, some churches have deacons, some churches have a single preacher, some churches are congregational. Um, church polity is a doctrine. Gender roles in leadership. Some churches ordain women as pastors or leaders. Um, they may be born again, they may not have a full understanding of the scriptures um, the way maybe we would understand it, but that's still a, a doctrinal issue. Okay, I've left two. Calvinism and Arminianism. That's a doctrine. It's not a dogma. Okay? If somebody doesn't agree with me on the issue of election and predestination, I cannot say to them, well, you're not a Christian. 
Because it's not a dogma. It's a doctrine. I can say my understanding of salvation is different than your understanding from salvation, but we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We can agree to disagree. Another one is eternal security. Now, we at Emmanuel believe strongly in eternal security. It's the, it's the fifth of the points of Calvinism, more specifically, perseverance of the saints. But uh, there are people in more like the Nazarene church tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, that are born again, genuine believers in Jesus Christ that believe you can lose your salvation. And we wouldn't say to them, you're not a Christian. Um, it's not a dogma issue. So what we're talking about tonight and over the next few weeks is an issue of doctrine. Okay, So it's not a hill to die on. It's not something that's to be divisive. Um, you can have strong opinions on it, and you can have um, issues in your church uh, where, you, where, where a specific church can come together and say, this is what we've, we've, we've centered our beliefs around, but we can't go to other brothers and sisters who are generally Christians and, and say that um, they're not a Christian. Okay? We may say that we disagree with them, and we can maybe even say you're wrong, and here's why, but we can't question their salvation when it comes to these issues. Okay? What about issues of preference, okay? And by the way, most of these issues of preferences are what causes church splits. You think if a church is going to split, it would split over dogma, but most churches split over preferences. Style of worship. Do you have a praise team or do you have a choir? Do you have chairs? Do you have pews? Do you have a sloped floor in the sanctuary or do you have a flat floor? Do you put Baptist in your name? Or do you, are you, are you, are, 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 do you take the, the name out of are, are, are the non-denominational? The times of worship. 1015, 1030, 11. That's a preference. Sunday school versus home groups. Nowhere in the Bible does it say thou shalt have Sunday school. Nowhere does it say you should have home groups. It says you should gather together for discipleship and the breaking of bread. Awana versus team kid. Which one's better? It's a preference or a style. And the color of the carpet. Okay, these are all things that are preferences. Things that you may particularly like or dislike that have nothing to do with theology. Nothing to do with doctrine. And definitely not anything to do with dogma. Okay? I want to paint for us a little bit of a historical context because we're going to be diving into the Bible a lot over the next few weeks. And, we're, and everything's going to come from the scriptures. But I want to give you some historical context. I want you to see how this issue has played out um, throughout history. That it's not just something that's new. It's, it's been debated since the very beginning of the early church. Okay? You had um, Augustine and a, a guy named Pelagius. We'll talk about Pelagius a little bit later. Maybe you've heard of Pelagianism. Um, both were um, monks. Both were lived in England. They were actually... Um, you probably consider early Roman Catholic, but Augustine believed strongly in the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of predestination. Uh, Pelagius, he and Pelagius in the early 400s would have these arguments back and forth about which one was right. So even from the early 400s, um, Augustine was one of the first major theologians to kind of give us maybe basically what we call Reformed theology um, in, in some writings. Later on, Luther... Martin Luther, the, the 95 Theses in 1517 to about 1520, he debated with Erasmus. Okay? Erasmus wrote a treatise called The Freedom of the Will, um, arguing for free will. Luther wrote in response to him The Bondage of the Will. 
It's a book that says, no, our wills are in bondage. Um, and so both of those guys debated. That was in the 1500s. Then you can't talk about Calvinism without talking about John Calvin. Um, it's unfortunate that he's the one that gets the nickname because contrary to popular opinion, John Calvin's not the one that came up with the five points of Calvinism. Uh, it was a nicknamed after him. And as a matter of fact, uh, there's some things that um, if you read John Calvin, you think that he probably doesn't believe the five points of Calvinism in some areas. Uh, but he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion in about 1536, the greatest, hugest document probably in the history of the church on, on theology. Um, then you had, in the 1700s, um, Whitfield and Wesley, two British pastors. John Wesley was a little bit older than George Whitfield. Um, Wesley was the founder of Methodism, and Wesley was a strong proponent of Arminianism. His views later became Wesleyanism. Um, Whitfield was a strong Calvinist. Wesley was a strong Arminian. Both of them were used by God to bring about the Great Awakening in England under their preaching. Both were godly men. But they had their, their intramural debates between each other. Jonathan Edwards, in the Great Awakening, in America, across the ocean here in America, in 1733 to about 1735, Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist. He believed strongly in the sovereignty of God. He, he was a staunch Calvinist. But yet God used him and his preaching to bring about one of the greatest revivals in American history. And most people, this is the lightning rod person because both sides claim this person is their hero. But if you read this next person's writings, if you read his sermons, if you study his theology, you cannot say that Spurgeon was anything but a five-point Calvinist. Spurgeon was a Calvinist. And as a matter of fact, he wrote a, a little treatise called A Defense of Calvinism, where he defended Calvinism because, let me give you a little bit of history of what the downgrade controversy was. In England, the Baptist denomination was getting more liberal and more liberal and more Arminian and more almost leaning towards universalism, where Jesus isn't the only way everybody's going to be saved. And Spurgeon, who had been the greatest hero in that Baptist denomination, really had to fight against his own denomination to keep it theologically sound, and they basically blackballed Spurgeon. They basically smeared his, his reputation. And so that was basically in the 1860s and 70s. Okay? Let's talk about 20th century and today. I've, I've given you a list of modern-day individuals who would be in probably both camps. I'm in the Reformed Calvinistic camp. You've got R.C. Sproul, obviously, the, probably the, the grandfather of the, of the current crop of Calvinists. John Piper... John MacArthur, Mark Driscoll, a young pastor who's, who's kind of becoming popular. C.J. Mahaney, uh, he's a weird animal. He's a, he's a charismatic Calvinist, which um, I think is kind of cool. Al Mohler, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Michael Horton, J.I. Packer, James White, uh, Jerry Bridges, Art Azurdia, our friend that's come here and preached. Matt Chandler, Alistair Begg, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, Kent Hughes, Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, Wayne Grudem. These may, names may not mean anything to you, but these are some of the big names right now in our culture, in our evangelical culture, who would label themselves or be in the camp of Reformed theology. Now, what about on the Arminian side or the, the, the other camp? You have someone like William Lane Craig, um, Norman Geisler, Jerry Vines, who's a big um, Southern Baptist um, preacher. Ergen Canner, he's the president of Liberty. Liberty Theological Seminary is highly 
anti-Calvinistic. It's Baptist in its, um, in its tenor. Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. Uh, Calvary Chapel, and I'll talk a little bit about Calvary Chapel. Uh, right now, it seems like Calvary Chapel, uh, some of the leaders of Calvary Chapel are, are on a Calvinistic witch hunt in some of their things. Um, Charles Stanley, Roger Olson, and Dave Hunt. And so I wanted to give you just a broad spectrum. If these are guys you listen to on the radio or watch on TV or just know about, uh, just which camp they're in. Okay? I want to describe my journey. And um, because... I have not always been where I am today. And I kind of want to just give you some watershed events in my life that have really just kind of brought me to the point where I am today. And what I wanna, the, the main purpose I want to share that with you is that um, it's something I came to kicking and screaming. I grew up pretty much in a traditional Southern Baptist church that was pretty Arminian in its belief system. Um, we did believe in eternal security, but um, very strong in the issue of free will, a very more of a man-centered approach to evangelism. And so um, when I went off to college, I was first confronted with Calvinists. And these were, um, we were in a Baptist student union and um, some Air Force Academy cadets were some of my friends. And I remember over Village Inn talking about Calvinism. And I remember getting so broiled and so, so uh, blood boiling and, and saying, well, if that's the God you believe in, I don't want anything to do with that God. And um, we would just get really, really mad. As a matter of fact, my friend and I were so anti-Calvinistic, we wrote a little treatise where we were just anti-Calvinism, hot-headed young college students. And, and he and I were just really, really anti-Calvinism. Okay. I go to seminary, 2000, year 2000. And it wasn't that Golden Gate is purposely Calvinistic. It's just that some of the professors I had had that viewpoint. You start reading systematic theology. You start reading about these people in history. You start looking at, all I knew were caricatures. Any caricature that you had of a Calvinist, that's all I knew. I didn't know exactly what they actually believed. I just knew what you, you didn't want to be one. And so I actually started studying what they actually believed, what they said, and, and, and not just the characters, but the primary sources. I'd go and start reading Jonathan Edwards. I'd go and read Calvin. I'd go and read Luther. I'd go and read some of these, um, Charles Spurgeon, these old guys, and find out exactly what they said. And then James White, my professor in um, my apologetics class, um, you can actually go to his website today. Um, he wrote the book, The Potter's Freedom. And he, he gave us a copy of that book in his class. And um, he said, if you struggle with the issue of Calvinism, read my book. You don't have to agree with it, but just read it. Well, I hated it when I first read it. I thought it was a crock. And then I went back and actually started following his exegesis, which means his Bible study, through the actual passages. He didn't gloss over these issues. He took you through the scriptures in the Greek as a scholar. And, it, and it, I came kicking and screaming against it, but it was just so watertight. I couldn't, I couldn't argue against him. Then I started learning Greek in seminary. I started learning the original language. I started learning how words and phrases and verbs and pronouns are put together. And that started opening my eyes to this and seeing it in the original languages. And then I read through the Gospel of John. And that about sunk me because I started reading the Gospel of John in a different way. Of seeing some of these things that I'd never seen before in the Gospel of John. Then I started reading Ephesians 1 and 2 over again. Ephesians chapter 1, you can't get away from the word predestined and chosen and all those things. Sometimes I used to gloss over, sometimes we gloss over issues we don't want to deal with because we're afraid of it. I started diving into that. I started just 
devouring um, Ephesians 1 and 2. Then I went to Romans 8 and 9. The hardest chapter in the New Testament is Romans chapter 9. You can come away from Romans chapter 9 being a very angry individual (laughs) because of the struggle that it takes you through. And then there was a crisis in my office. I was a youth pastor at the time. I had, it was probably around, probably like, let's see, I started college in, 90, in 1990, and then I started seminary in 2000, and probably around 2001, 2002, was when, so it's almost a 12-year 12 12 year journey of going from being an adamant anti-Calvinist to sitting in my office, throwing my Bible across the room, getting mad at God and saying, well, God, I guess I am a Calvinist. I'm pretty mad at you. Why did you have to do this to me? Everything was fine until you started uh, revealing these things to me. And I really broke down and started crying. And, and I went home and I told Dawn. And I can't, I'll never remember, forget what she said. Um, because I never pushed it on Dawn. Dawn. I never pushed it on anybody. I just said, this is where I'm at. I don't know how, I kind of know how I got here. And Dawn said, Sean, if this is the God of the Bible, and this is the God who's revealed himself in the Bible, you have no choice but to submit to it. And I said, okay, okay, Don, great. Well, there was one last final point of Calvinism. I was a four-point Calvinist at that point. It was the limited atonement one that I had trouble with. And so I read every book I could read on the third point, particular redemption, limited atonement, and, and reading the arguments and reading the scriptures. Then I went back and read Hebrews. And then it was you know, really around 2002 I became a convinced Calvinist. And saying that, as a youth pastor, I never once ever took a student aside and discipled them to become a Calvinist. I don't think I've taken anybody in this church and pulled them aside and discipled them to become a Calvinist. What I've said is, go read the scriptures. Go read Ephesians 1 and ask these questions. Go spend time looking at these things. And then what would happen is time after time, these students would come back to me and say, if I believe this, my parents are going to freak out because this is not anything that my parents believe. And I said, well, you need to submit to your parents first and foremost. But these are, these are uh, growing times in your life as a teenager. And so when, we, when I, I come to this point now as your pastor, who, I'm a committed Calvinist. I, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. But I have, do not have an agenda to make everybody in this church Calvinists. I would much rather you go to heaven loving Jesus and the Bible Because when we get to heaven, you're not going to get in by whether you have a big C on your shirt or whether you have a big A on your shirt. You're going to get in based upon your belief in Jesus Christ, your trust in him. And so I would rather you be students of the Bible. If you so happen to believe the Bible and understand that Calvinism is what it teaches, that's great. If you go on another trajectory and you honestly struggle with the text and you come to some other conclusions, that's great as well. I'm more concerned with you going to the Bible and struggling with these issues. Not because I say it, not because R.C. Sproul or John Piper or John MacArthur says it, because God says it and you've struggled with it. So the purpose of this class is to blow away all the stereotypes that maybe you've heard of Calvinism to clearly teach what is it. So, I mean, you can, you can destroy or, or put a straw man up of what it's not and tear it down. Let's put up what it is and what Calvinists believe, and then you can tear it down. But at least let's put up what it really is, okay? So, our approach is going to be pretty traditional. We're going to follow Tulip. And um, I will give you the uh, acrostic. 
if we have time, we may watch a video. Let me just tell you that um, the Dutch church, kind of after Calvin was off the scene and there was an influence there, the Dutch church, under Jacob Arminius, uh, thus Arminianisms, the Dutch church became what we'd call Arminian. They came out with the five points of Arminianism. Okay? So the five points of Arminianism come historically before the five points of Calvinism. The Synod of Dort, the Synod of Dort came together to refute the five points of Arminianism and came up with the five points of Calvinism in response to the five points of Arminianism. So it's interesting to realize that the five points of Arminianism were there first, and then the five points of, of Calvinism came. But this, this is just the acrostic tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. I don't like a lot of the terminology for the tulip acrostic, but if you had a, a different title, it would be like a weird way to remember it. So when we get to each point, I would like to use more of the biblical terminology that it uses, okay? So when we talk about the doctrines of grace, when we talk about election and predestination, most people automatically think of Paul. Ephesians, Romans, they think of the Pauline writings. But we're going to take a different approach. We're going to look at Paul, but I want to primarily go to Jesus. What comes out of the mouth of Jesus in relation to these issues? And so our primary scriptures are going to be a lot in John, a lot in Matthew, looking at Jesus. Now, I just want to give you just a little uh, anecdote from contemporary situations. I have nothing against Calvary Chapel. There's a great Calvary Chapel church in Colorado Springs that a lot of my friends go to. They are expository preachers that preach verse by verse in the Bible. They're my brothers and sisters in Christ. So I don't have a beef with Calvary Chapel at all. All I want to tell you is that the leaders of Calvary Chapel are saying some very interesting things about Calvinism. Recently on a radio program where you can call in and ask the leaders of Calvary Chapel some questions, a woman called in and said, my friend is becoming a Calvinist. How do I, how do I answer his questions? How do I combat him? Well, I was very surprised to hear the leaders of Calvary Chapel say things like, Calvinists are like cultists, that they're a cult. Uh, one man named Brian said, Calvinism is Christianity without Jesus. They only go to Paul and then read their theological opinions back into the Bible. Now, I don't want to play that game with Arminianism. It's not a cult. It's not Christianity without Jesus. And so I just give you that out there to say, people are saying some shocking things about Calvinists, that they're cultists, that they're not Christians, that they, they don't have Jesus in their theology. Um, and so hopefully the things that I say about Arminianism are more historical and factual from what they would actually say if we had a, say for example, a Wesleyan or a Nazarene or a Pentecostal pa pastor in here, he would agree with me and say, yes, that's our theology. So we're not going to cast stones. What we're going to do is we're just going to lay out what Calvinism is and alongside of it lay out the, the differences between Calvinism and Arminianism. So we're going to start with total depravity. That's where um, we start. And before we get to this definition of, of answering what, um, what camp you fall into, because you're going to fall into one of two camps. You're either going to be on the Calvinistic camp or you're going to be in the 
non-Calvinistic camp when it comes to this issue. So the question is this, how sinful are humans? What effect did the fall have on humanity? Because both Calvinists and Arminians believe that men are sinners. They believe that we've inherited sin from Adam. The question is, how sinful are we? And what exactly did Adam do that, that, that we've inherited now? And so how you answer that question, how sinful are we, is going to determine what camp you come into. And so there's been four primary um, answers to this question historically. Okay, And these are some weird words, but I'm just going to give you the historical words for these because these things are still around today. Okay, The first one is called Pelagianism. And again, this is named after that British monk Pelagius who um, often had conversations and debates with Augustine back in the 400s. Now this is what Pelagius taught. He argued that humans are born neutral. There's no original sin. In other words, we did not inherit a sin nature from Adam. We did not inherit original sin, you are born a blank slate. You can either be evil, you can be good, it depends upon your environment, but you are basically born neutral. Okay? This was declared heretical by the early church in 418 at the Council of Carthage. And to this day, it's been condemned by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Even the Roman Catholic Church condemns this as heresy. Okay? So if you are a Pelagian, you fall into the camp of a heretic by both the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. That mankind is neutral, that we we don't have any inherited sin from Adam. Okay, the second kind of modified is what we call semi Pelagianism. Okay? Adam and Eve fell in the garden. We have inherited a sin nature, but it's really more of a sickness. It's, it's a spiritual sickness, and so we need some medicine. And if somebody would just give us the medicine, we have the free will to reach out and grab the medicine, take the medicine, and thus be cured. So we still have free will. We still have the ability to choose. We are still um, in control. We're just not totally sinful, even though we are sinful. We're, we're just sick. Okay? Now next is Arminianism. And there's a difference between semi-Pelagianism and Arminianism. If you talk to an Arminian, a true Arminian, one that truly believes in Arminianism, this is what they believe. They believe in total depravity. If you talk to a true Arminian, they believe that man is totally depraved. But God gives to everyone something that they call provenient grace. It's called prevenient grace or enabling grace or helping grace. And so what happens is every sinner is given this prevenient grace that puts them in a state to put them back like Adam was in the garden to give them the ability to choose or reject Jesus. It's basically that you cooperate with this grace that's given to you. It's enough grace to get you over the hump of being sinful, but then ultimately you still choose. You're still in the driver's seat. You're still the one choosing. The prevenient grace is given to everyone. You can choose to accept the prevenient grace or reject the prevenient grace. You still... And so what they're trying to protect, which is a good thing, is Arminians are trying to protect the biblical doctrine of depravity, that men are depraved. And they see that in the Bible. 
what they, what they do is they say, man is dead, something must happen to him. Let's give everybody, God gives to everybody this provenient grace. Then once they have that provenient grace, they choose to either accept or reject Jesus. They're still really the ones that choose. They're, they cooperate with the grace given to them. Okay? Let's just talk about Cal- whoops, Calvinism. Basically, Calvinists believe we're totally depraved and dead. We're not sick. We don't need provenient grace. We can't respond to God unless he does something sovereign in our lives to make us spiritually alive and born again. And so, depending on how you view this question, this fundamental question is going to determine really how you view this issue of election, predestination, Calvinism, Arminianism. Are we neutral? You're a Pelagian. Are we sick but still have autonomous free will? You're a semi-Pelagian. Are we totally sinful but need the, uh, the bump of uh, prevenient grace? Then you are an Arminian. If you're dead in sin and you only need sovereign grace and that's the only thing that's going to give you salvation, then you are a Calvinist in relation to this issue of total depravity. Okay, let's start getting into the Bible. Let's go to John chapter 6 is where I want us to go. And I'm sorry to be doing a lot of the talking, but we'll have times for question and answer, and we can go back and, and do this. But I think it would be easier for those watching on the video for us to just go in one stream and then um, and do the questions so that we can have at least a concise presentation. John 6, let's start in verse 35, and let me give you the context here. Um, this is the feeding of the 5,000. And if you know anything about the Gospel of John, um, there are signs that John does. There's seven signs in the Gospel of John. And these signs are done for John uh, to, to, to illustrate Jesus displaying his uh, power. And his, um, it points to who Jesus is. And so the feeding of the 5,000 is a sign pointing to Jesus as being the bread of life. And so Jesus says, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven, just like manna in the Old Testament came down. I am the bread that you're never going to go hungry with. And so um, you can be satisfied in me. And so Jesus is talking about coming and feasting upon him to have that personal relationship with God. So let's just read John 6, 35 through 44. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day day. We see something in verse 37 that we see all through the gospel of John. And I want you to pay close attention to it because when we get to the issue of election, we're going to see it again. Jesus says something in verse 37. What does he say? All that the Father 
gives to me. So we need to start asking some deeper questions of the text. So we have to ask the question, this one. Who? Who is it that the Father gives to Jesus? Right now it just says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So, God the Father gives some people to Jesus. Now let's find out what happens here. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, this word coming, all that the Father gives me, those who come to me, coming is just another way that the Gospel of John uses the term trusting or believing or receiving in Jesus. So when Jesus says, all who come to me, he's talking about not just physically walking to him like, in, like, like, like he's here on earth, but trusting in him, believing in him, having that relationship with him. Okay? So what's the Father's will for Jesus? What does he say? Verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me. Okay, so when Jesus says, this is the will of God, what's the will of God? I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise him up on the last day. Here we have this given me, all that the Father gives to me. So let's just do some review here, okay? Jesus makes some emphatic statements about these people. We still don't know who these people are yet. We just know what Jesus says, that all, they're the people that the Father gives to Jesus, okay? What defines these people? First of all, they will come. What does Jesus say? Does he say they might come? They may come? He says they will come. So all that the Father gives to Jesus will come. There'll be nobody left of the ones that are given to Jesus by the Father. They will all come. Not only that, he will never cast them out, which means what? Jesus is never going to drive them away. Jesus can never say, you're not mine. Why would he do that if the Father has given them to him as a gift? Jesus cherishes the gift that the Father gives to him in these people, and he's not going to cast them out. Not only that, I will not lose even one of them. I will not cast them out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I will not lose anything that the Father gives me. So Jesus isn't going to even lose them. So there's no possibility for those that the Father has given to Jesus, who have come to Jesus, for him to lose them. And then he does something very specific for this group. What's repeated twice? I will, I will raise them on the last day. In other words, they will inherit eternal life. They will be with me on the last day. So, the identity of this group is still not answered. We know some things about them. They'll come to Jesus. He'll never cast them out. He won't lose them. They'll be raised on the third day. So let's ask a deeper question, the hard question, the Calvinistic question, I guess. Is it all people? Is it every single person who's ever lived? Or is there some type of qualifier? Now, based upon what we just have seen, what's the qualifier? Only those who come to Jesus. Now, are there people in the world right now that aren't coming to Jesus? Are there people right now that die in this world and go to hell without ever coming to Jesus? Okay. Are there people who are going to spend eternity in hell because they've rejected Jesus? 
Okay. So, has the Father given to Jesus all people? Based upon this text. Because if all people, every single person who's ever lived was given to Jesus, what would, that, what would, what would happen? Every single person would come to Jesus. Every single person would be raised up on the last day. Every single person would not be lost. And what do we know about the rest of the Bible teaches about there's people in hell right now. So we have to conclude based upon this that just upon Jesus' word here that the Father has not given all people to Jesus. There must be a group that's given to the Father. There must be a group the Father's given to Jesus that's distinct from another group. If what Jesus says here logically makes sense, holds true. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're, um, we're moving to the you, <laughs> unconditional election. But I, I want us to, um, to just see this terminology from Jesus' lips. Turn over to John 17. And we'll look at this when we talk about um, unconditional election. But turn over to John 17. Okay, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's in the garden. He's praying for himself. He's praying for his original disciples. He's praying for us. And it's interesting what Jesus prays and what Jesus reveals in John 17. Just the first couple of, of verses there. We have the same, almost exact terminology that we had in John chapter 6. And this is a prayer of Jesus. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given him. There you've got this issue of Jesus being given a people to inherit eternal life. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Now, Jesus has been given authority over who? Look at the text. Over all flesh. So who does Jesus have authority over? He has sovereign authority over every single person that's ever lived by right of who he is. Okay? He's Jesus. He has authority over the entire world. But there's a subset there. I have authority over all flesh, but there's another group. There's a group that receives eternal life all whom you have given me. So there's a subset among the entire world. What would the subset be? The group that receives eternal life. Now Jesus says, I have authority over the whole world. Does every single person who's ever lived go to heaven? Even though Jesus has authority over the whole world. Who goes to heaven? Only those who come to Jesus and receive eternal life. Okay? And Jesus says again, all that the Father has given me to receive eternal life will come. Now, we'll go down to uh, verse uh, 17. I mean, chapter 17, verses 6 through 9. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So what is Jesus saying again? There's a group of people that God has given him, and now he makes it even more specific. Out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, they've kept your word, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. So what is Jesus saying? 
There's two groups. There's the group of people that have been given to him by the Father out of the other group. What's the other group? The world. And Jesus says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for this big group, even though I have authority over them. I'm praying, and I'm, I'm giving my life. I'm, I have a special relationship with those you've given me out of the world. So let's go back to John chapter 6. I wanted you to see that because I wanted you just to pay attention to that terminology. I don't know if you've ever seen that before, that the Father has given Jesus a people. Now, you may ask the question, when did this happen? We'll talk about that when we get to election. Right now, we're talking about total depravity. So, what's the predicament? Do you see a predicament in John chapter 6? If the Father has given to Jesus a people, and all that come to him will not be cast out, and they will be raised up on the last day. Jesus makes a very interesting statement in John 6.44. Let's look at it. John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come. What does that sound like? Does that sound like permission or ability? Is Jesus saying, no one has, everyone, no one is permitted to come to me. Does that sound like what he's saying? In the original Greek, it means no one is able to. No one has the inherent ability to come. You can't come in and of yourselves unless something happens to you. So Jesus isn't saying that you don't have permission to come. What he's saying is you don't have the ability to come even if you wanted to and you don't want to. No one, can, no one has the inherent ability to come to me. No one, and what do we say come represented? Believe. So Jesus is really saying no one has the ability to believe in me unless something first happens to you. And what does he say? Look at the rest of the verse. Unless what? The Father must Draw them. No one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. So who takes the initiative? The Father. The Father draws, and once the Father draws, all that the Father has given to Jesus do in time come. Now look down at verse 65. Verse 65. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come. There it is again. No one has the ability to come. No one has the power. No one has the inherent um, ability unless it is granted him by the Father. Now before, what did it say? Unless the Father draws him. Now it says, unless the Father, I think some translations say, enables or grants Unless God graces, unless God does a work of drawing, unless God does a work of grace, no one's going to come. Now, next week we're going to talk about all the different verses that the Bible speaks of, of why people can't come. Spiritual inability and total depravity. Now, in our day, a lot of people may believe that a sinner can come to Jesus anytime they want to. Humans have autonomous free will. They can use their free will however they want at any given moment. Once the gospel's preached, they have the freedom to receive Christ. They have the freedom to reject Christ. They can 
operate in a way that they're the ones in charge. They can cause themselves to be drawn to the Father. They can be giving themselves to the Father. They can come to Jesus on their own. And so what I would argue on those four views that we looked at earlier, I would say that um, most people today, whether they know it or not, and this again, this is a broad general statement, I think a lot of people today are semi-Pelagian. Now, if you were to walk around and say, are you a semi-Pelagian? Most people wouldn't know what you're, what you're talking about. But most people, most evangelical Christians believe, yes, the fall has affected man. We are sinners. But we're not so sinful that we cannot come to Jesus on our own. We still have the will to do it. I can choose to come. I can exercise my free will to come. There's nothing preventing me from coming to Jesus. I have the ability. Now, yeah, the Holy Spirit plays a role, but ultimately, even if the Holy Spirit draws me, I'm still the final determiner whether I come or not. And so that, I think most people may be uh, semi-Pelagian. That's where I want to stop tonight. And now that your brain is fried, what types of questions would you guys have for me at this point? Or clarifications? Yes, Dick. I'm going to repeat your question just for the, uh, the rest of the... I think he is. Yeah, if you chase if you trace John chapter three all the way into its context, what's what's Jesus doing? He's having a conversation with Nicodemus on what it means to be born again. And one of the primary reasons that Jesus says you, you can't do it on your own is because you love darkness. You are wicked in your heart. And even if you don't believe in Jesus, what does he say? You're already under con condemnation. Now, here's a statement. You may disagree with it. Are you sent to hell because you didn't believe in Jesus? Or are you sent to hell because... You're a sinner. And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's both. 
But ultimately what sends you to hell is the fact that you are a sinner already under condemnation, under God's wrath. Because if the converse was true, if the only reason you were sent to hell is because you wouldn't believe in Jesus, why do world missions to people that have never heard of Jesus before? Because they're good. They're not going to hell because of their sin. They're going to hell because they never heard of Jesus. But once they hear Jesus and they reject him, then they're going to go to hell. So why go mess it up for them? It'd be better just not to go to unreached people groups and leave them in their darkness, if, if, if that's the issue. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that you are under condemnation. You are already in darkness. You cannot come. You, you must be born again. And if it's going to happen, God must be the one to do it. And that, that gets into the irresistible grace part, but it all ties together. So I, I think, Dick, to answer your question, I would understand Jesus' words to mean, yes, salvation is from first to last because we are totally depraved. Does that, does that clarify things for you? Or did it make more, things more confusing? Okay. Other questions? Don't be afraid to ask. Are you saying that Paul picked the two? I would say, I wouldn't necessarily use the word picks and chooses. I would say the Father, before the, found, before the earth was created, chose who he would give to Jesus. And it's not everybody. It's only those that the Father chose. And there was nothing in those people that caused the Father to choose them over others. It just says it was according to the counsel of his will when you look at Ephesians. That, that would be the Calvinistic view. That God gives some... God, here, here's a thing that Artaxerdia said one time. God does some things for all people, but God does all things for some people. In other words, the Calvinistic view would say... Before the world was created, God the Father chose a certain group, a large group that no one could count, of who would be saved. And they are the ones that are given to Jesus, who will come to Jesus, who won't be cast out, who the Father will draw. The rest he leaves in their sin and doesn't do anything like negative to make them more sinful. He just passes over them, leaves them in their sin, and because they're sinners and they can't come to Christ, they won't. Does that make sense or is that more confusing? You mean this right here? Um, this could possibly be something to do with Jews because Nicodemus was a Jew, but there's really no Gentile um, f flavor in this one, at least in John chapter 3. Now there's other places like in Ephesians where Paul is addressing Jews and Gentiles Romans 9.11, he's addressing Jews and Gentiles. But I don't think in John 3, he's dealing as much with that. So. And sometimes we think that the father's up there going, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, like his eyes are closed, and it's a capricious where, you know, or we think it's random, or we think it's without a purpose. The, here's the issue. The Bible doesn't answer why why God chooses some and not others. But one thing, we can't, the one thing we can say is it wasn't because we were any better than the person sitting next to us. It wasn't because we were more spiritually in tune. It wasn't because we had, you know, we, we, we kept the law better or we were better morally. 
And it can't be because God saw something in us that moved him to say, oh, there's something in Sean that really moves me to want to, to choose him. All Ephesians says is God did it according to the good pleasure of his will. And we don't know what that is. And we may never know. But God had his reasons. It's not random. God had his reasons for doing it. And we may never know what those reasons are from the Calvinistic perspective. From the Arminian perspective, they would say that, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks, the differing views of election. The, 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 the Arminian view is the foreknowledge view that God looks down to the corridors of time. God sees, God foresees who's going to accept or reject Jesus. And based on what God sees, he then chooses. And so you're still chosen before time, but God's choice of you is based upon what he sees you doing with your free will in the future. Does that make sense? We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the two views of, of election, unconditional and conditional. But they all wrap together. Yes, Larry. I'll give you my personal answer, and I'll, I'll just tell you this. Did everybody hear this question? The real question is, the other question, the way they ask it a different way is, do, do, do babies who die either through abortion or through miscarriages or do not reach an age where they can mentally understand, do they go to heaven? Are they among the elect? Okay. The Bible doesn't answer that question. There's no explicit Bible verse that answers that question, so we're left with a mystery. Now, the traditional Baptist, Presbyterian, Reformed, view is all those who die in infancy and all those who are mentally incapable of trusting Christ, like my son Zachary, who may be 10 years old but has the mental capacity of, of an infant, they will go to heaven. And that probably the ones that die early, God just spared them life on this earth because they were elect. So my, my, my philosophical and my theological answer is all babies who die go to heaven. I don't have a scripture verse to back it up. I've got some, I've got some possible arguments I can make, but really the Bible doesn't come out and answer that question, Larry. You have to think it's so, yeah. And see, here's the issue for me. This is another watershed issue. Even after I was a Calvinist, my son Zachary can't use his free will to trust Jesus for salvation because he doesn't have the capacity to do that. So I'm left with a quandary. Well, how does he get saved? Well, God just saves him. Okay, well, then you have two methods of salvation to setting up. God just saves some people without them knowing that they're being saved, without regenerating them, without conscious faith. In others, there's a different plan. They've got to trust Jesus. They've got to believe Jesus. They've got to repent of their sins. So are there two methods of salvation? Or the way I've wrapped it in my mind is God has sovereignly regenerated Zachary and caused him to be born again. He just, ha he just can't express it in repentance and faith. And, if he, and when he goes to heaven, he will go to heaven based upon the death of Jesus Christ in his place and regeneration. He just never had the mental capacity to actually verbally express it. So that gets into the whole irresistible grace. But for me, sovereign election and sovereign regeneration and all that thing makes sense for Zachary, who can't use free will. Does that make sense or does that complicate things more?
Does that answer your question, Larry? And don't be afraid to ask questions. You guys look all tentative like you're, you can, this is time for banter and time for bringing up, because some of you may have never heard these things before, and it could be very um, confrontational or confusing or clarification. So, any other questions? Linda, you look like you're wanting to ask something, or, you, or maybe you're thinking out loud. Oh, Wendy, okay, I was, I was talking about Linda, but if, I, I didn't mean to, per, I was thinking about Linda. Okay, that's the big question. And the Bible doesn't answer that question. There's no Bible verse that says anything about an age of accountability that I've ever found in the Bible. I mean, I think there's a, a point where you, as far as, are you talking about like an actual age? that you? I think the Bible teaches that you've got to be able to mentally understand the facts of the gospel and be able to, to understand it so that you can receive the gospel. A four-year-old may be able to do that, or it could be by the time you're, you know, six. I don't know if there's a definite, like the age of accountability is six, so the age of accountability is four. I think there's, you know, different people are different, but it's that point in time where you can understand the concept of sin and the gospel and Jesus and you can freely come to Christ and, and accept him. And I guess some people call it the age of accountability. Some people call it the, um, the moment of, that you become what they call a real transgressor. Um, that you're born with original sin but you haven't really committed any sins yet. So when you're old enough to understand that you've actually committed a real sin, that's kind of the age uh, you know, of accountability or whatever. So, but there's no real verse that says that uses that terminology, age of accountability, in the Bible. There's, there's the concepts are there, but not the actual wording, age of accountability. Right. Right. The Bible doesn't answer that. All, all we've got, I mean, let's just turn there real quick, and we'll give you a preview. Let's turn to Ephesians. There, okay, I can play the Deuteronomy 29.29 card on you, but I... Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to God. And the things that he has chosen to reveal to us, he has. It's a paraphrase. I take that to mean there's some secret things that God hasn't chosen to reveal to us. Either because if we were to understand them, they would blow our minds. We're not God. God has chosen specifically not to say everything about everything in the Bible. He's left some things mysterious. But the things that he has spoken about we can understand. All right, uh, just, just read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 uh, through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now here's the the, the real key, verse 11. In him... 
we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So all we know is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. What that will is, it doesn't say. It just says there's a purpose, there's a plan, it's God's, it, God does it according to the counsel of his will. So why some are chosen and others aren't? Why God allows some to live? And why, The whole why question, all we're left with <laughs> to make us humble, I think, is God does it according to his will. And the secret things belong to God, and there's some things he's chosen not to, not to reveal to us. There's a lot of questions about Calvinism I, the Bible doesn't answer that I have. And one day when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Paul what he meant by some things. What are some other things? Yes, Karen. Well, I, I was going to go that way, but that, that's one thing. What Karen just shared is something that a, that a lot of people don't want to hear. And what Karen said is God does it for his glory in showing his justice. Now, John MacArthur and John Piper have both made similar statements like this, and it shocks you when you hear it. They will say God is glorified in the damnation of sinners because those that go to hell, God has shown his justice in, in sinners that are, that are there, that God is glorified in that. I don't know how you take that statement, positive or negative, um, but if God does all things according to the counsel of his will and does all things for his glory then there's parts of God's character that are just as important as his love and as his justice. I mean, do you want to hear something really weird? Well, let's just read it. Go to Revelation. There's always weird stuff in Revelation. And I'm not trying to make you mad at me. I always feel like sometimes when we do talks on election and Calvinism, um, there's a lot of emotions. Do you realize that when God executes justice on the face of the earth, and sends sinners to hell, heaven erupts with praise that God did it. We, glorified saints in heaven, will be praising hallelujah, will be saying hallelujah that God is exercising his judgment and sinners are getting what they deserve. Now we can't conceive of that right now because we think that's unfair, that's cold, that's harsh. But, even, but this, is, this is when we're in heaven. This is the glorified state. Look at Revelation 19. Okay, Revelation 17 and 18 is really all, 16, 17, and 18 is really just all judgment. God's wrath, God's bowl, seventh bowl, the great prostitute, Babylon, has fallen. Um, it's, it's just God is bringing his wrath on the earth. Okay, Revelation 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are just and true. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted earth with her immortality, immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. 
And from the throne came a voice, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. So we're praising God that the great Babylonian harlot has been destroyed and all of her offspring with her, which are those who, don't take, the, those who take the mark of the beast, if you go through and look at Revelation. Didn't think you'd come to a Wednesday night and have all this difficult stuff thrown at you at one time. Any other questions? And don't be afraid. I mean, th- this is a place to ask great questions. I don't want to go too fast through this. I want to clearly... Um, you're looking intently, but uh, yeah, like you're searching around in your minds. I don't think we're going to have time to watch that video. We may have time. Shane, there's a video in there. Um, it's actually in the DVD player. And um, if you, can you switch it to the screen up here and I can tell you what chapter to put it on and we'll just watch it for a little bit. Or are there maybe, are there any questions? We can watch the video or... It's not coming on. What? What? I didn't hear what he said. He doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, okay. Chat. Go under chapter selection. And um, you have the remote. I should have probably got that set up. Okay, go under chapter selection and then go under um, go under the main menu or go under next. I think it's chapter five. Where the Synod of Dort. Um, yeah, go under chapter six. And then we'll just need to get audio. Do we have audio through the sound? And we'll watch it for about... As the gap between Rome and the reformers grew, attempts were made, consciously and unconsciously, to find a compromise between the two positions. The next cycle of false teaching 
this time growing up from within the ranks of the Protestant movement, involved a very sincere man by the name of James Arminius. Arminius was born in Uitwater in the Netherlands. He became a pastor of an Amsterdam congregation and a professor at the University of Leiden from 1603 until his death in 1609. During the course of his life, Arminius rejected many of the teachings of the Reformation and returned to the semi-Pelagian view of Rome. In 1610, one year after Arminius's death, his followers drafted five articles of faith based upon his teachings. These five points of what came to be called Arminianism stood in contradistinction to what the Church of Holland had been teaching since the Reformation. These five articles, also called the Remonstrance or Protest, were then presented to the Reformed Church. The Arminian party insisted that the Church's statements of faith, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, be adapted to conform to the five points of Arminianism. In November of 1618, a national synod or council was convened in the city of Dort for the purpose of examining the views of the Arminian party. Eighty-four members and 18 civil commissioners, including 27 delegates from Germany, Switzerland, England, and elsewhere, were in attendance. From the first day until the synod's close in May of 1619, some 154 sessions were held. The result was an overwhelming rejection of the five points of Arminianism. Since the Arminian attack had been so focused and severe, the men who were part of the Synod believed a mere rejection of the five points of Arminianism would be insufficient to stem the tide of error. They therefore responded to each of the five points in turn, formulating what has come to be called the five points of Calvinism. What the Synod of Dort did was to reaffirm the confessional statement that already existed in the Dutch Reformed Church, and they reaffirmed it in light of the particular objections that the Remonstrants had brought against it. It's known today as the five points of Calvinism, but Calvin didn't sit down one day and say, I'm going to write my theology in five points and then write out these five points. But the reason they came out as five distinct points was because it was in response to the objections of the Arminians or the, the Remonstrants. Dr. J.I. Packer, author of the classic work Knowing God, summarized the Arminian position as put forth by the Remonstrants. Number one, man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it's put before him. Number two, man is never so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject God's grace. Number three, election is as a result of God, looking down the quarters of time, foreseeing that a sinner will accept Christ. Therefore, God elects those who first elect him. Number four, Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith. For the remonstrance, there was no such gift. What it did was rather to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they would only choose to believe. And number five, it ultimately rests with the believers to keep themselves in a state of grace by keeping up their faith. Those who fail here fall away and are lost. Dr. Packer concludes, 
Arminianism made man's salvation depend ultimately on man himself, saving faith being viewed throughout as man's own work. In essence, Arminianism recaptured the synergistic position of semi-Pelagianism and Roman Catholicism, teaching that salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God, who takes the initiative, and man, who must respond, with man's response being the ultimate determining factor. God has provided salvation for everyone, but his provision becomes effective only for those who of their own free will choose to cooperate with him and accept his free offer of grace. At the crucial point, man's will plays a decisive role, the catalyst or active ingredient. Thus, man's good work, and not God's, determines who will be recipients of the gift of grace. The Synod of Dort, as we've seen, responded to the five points of the Arminian party with what is known today as the five points of Calvinism. We'll wait until the next section to examine each of these points in detail, but in essence they are as follows. Number one, total depravity in response to the Arminian view of free will. Number two, unconditional election in contradistinction to conditional election. Number three, particular or what is commonly referred to as limited atonement in opposition to general or universal atonement. Number four, irresistible grace in reply to resistible grace. And number five, perseverance of the saints in answer to the idea that a saved man could be unsaved. In short, the leaders at the Synod of Dort, like Luther, Calvin, and Augustine, taught that salvation is accomplished by the almighty power of the triune God. The Father chooses or elects people to be saved. The Son redeems them through His cross. And the Holy Spirit makes Christ's death effective by bringing the elect to faith and repentance, thereby causing them willingly to believe the gospel. The entire process is the work of God and is by and through grace alone. Thus, God's grace and not man's good work determines who will be saved. The leaders assembled at Dort understood that the five points of Arminianism were on shaky ground, that if one point were proven wrong, the entire system would collapse. The Arminians were ejected out of the church. Over 300 ministers were expelled as a result of their disagreement with the doctrinal teaching of the Dutch church. That teaching was Reformational theology, or Calvinism, as it is more popularly known. The Synod of Dort taught that salvation, from beginning to end, was a work of God's grace alone. They believed that Adam's fall had ruined the whole race and plunged man into spiritual death that entangled his will in bondage to sin and Satan to teach that man could save himself by an exercise of his will apart from the grace of God, which is Pelagianism, or contribute to his own salvation by having man cooperate with the grace of God, which is semi-Pelagianism, was heresy, a giant step away from the Reformation and back towards Roman Catholicism. The reformers felt that if they 
acquiesced to the protests or the remonstrations of the uh, Arminians at that time, that in a very real way, they would have been putting their feet back on a path to Rome. Now, let me clarify that. I don't think any of them believed that Arminianism was or is today Roman Catholicism. We're talking about putting your feet on a path that goes in a certain direction. Now, the big difference between historic Arminianism and Roman Catholicism is that Arminianism does believe and affirms categorically the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That is, an orthodox Arminian believes that the grounds for his justification, for his salvation, is not his own righteousness, but the righteousness that has been won for him by the work of Jesus Christ. However, when you get down to the nitty-gritty and you push Arminianism to its logical conclusion, there is where you see the uh, extreme danger of slipping into a works righteousness. And if once right, you we'll acknowledge free stop will... Stop with the words from R.C. there. Luther and all... Well, R.C. Sproul. Um, this is an issue of doctrine. So I don't want... Again, we're not trying to convert anybody to Calvinism. We're not trying to convert anybody to Arminianism. We're just trying to paint the picture of what Calvinism is. People ask me all the time, what is Calvinism, or, or why are you a Calvinist? And I'm like, do you have a couple hours for me to explain it? Because if I'm just going to tell you a few things, and all these thoughts are going to be coming into your mind. So I thought the best way to do it is to systematically lay it out for you over a bunch of weeks with the scriptures so you can wrestle with it. And hopefully by the end of it, you can like, that's, that's, that's a crock. That's not, you know, that's not what I believe, or it's kind of close to what I believe, or I'm still searching, and that's, that's totally your choice. I'll be an Arminian in this case. It's your free will to choose how you want to embrace Calvinism. Some of you will be predestined to embrace it. Some, no, I'm just joking. Um, let's pray, and then if you have any questions for me afterwards, I'd be more than happy to answer those for you. And I really don't like this format of being up here. I feel like I'm disconnected from you, so I don't know if maybe we can even just bring in a regular, I don't know. Did you guys feel like it was too far away, or is it okay? I seem like a, you're used to it. <laughs> well, I guess I'll watch it back and see how goofy I look on video, but it just feels like I'm really far away from you for, for interaction. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Uh, Lord, these are hard concepts for us to understand if we've um, been thinking about these for a while or it's the first time we've thought about them. And Lord, we just want to understand your truth. And in all things, we want to give you glory. We want to give you, give you praise. We thank you for saving us. None of us here deserves your salvation, but by grace you've saved us. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross, rising again. And Holy Spirit, thank you for giving us the gift of faith so that we can be sealed for the day of redemption. And so, Lord, help us to um, leave this place uh, knowing that we may disagree as brothers and sisters in Christ, but the love of Christ compels us to, to stay united in the fellowship together and to love each other through these differences. And so may you be glorified in our love for each other. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.